It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Let's talk whistleblowers. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days, while in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week it's once again a full house. That means leading the line around the captain's armband is Carl. So Carl, how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, really good. Thanks, Dan. It's not been a bad week for us as Spurs fans this week for a change. So uh, very happy and looking forward to getting into all things football with you guys as normal. Fantastic. That means you're also joined by Fulham fan Matthew. Matthew, I hope all is well with you, my friend. Um, I'll let you know how well I'm feeling once I've woken up from the nap that I got from uh, watching the Fulham Crystal Palace game. So, yeah, once I've, once I've recovered from that, I'll let you know. That means, Max, you might be in a state of narcolepsy as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I was gonna, I was gonna say something similar to Matthew, but I think he's he's gazumped me a little bit there. Um, a little bit depressed about all the VAR, you know, refereeing stuff. It's getting a bit uh, boring, but I'm sure we'll get into it. We certainly will. That's going to start the show. Before we do that, let's do the social media bits first. Otherwise, we'll be talking to the abyss once more. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter at Dan Tracy Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at Real Football Pod. And if you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like us, leave a review so we move up the league table. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and Spotify. And the easiest way to find all the links is by going to Linktree slash Real Football Cast. Drop a doctrine R and the E, and then you get 10 podcast platforms for you to choose from. It's never been easier to listen to. While the podcast can announce another new content partner, this time I've teamed up with betting.com. I'll be adding some match previews between now and the end of the season. So if you want to put your money where your mouth is, make sure to check out their website and have a read of my work. Right, it's time to go live. Where should we go first? Let's go to the Hawthorns. And although we'll talk about the result in a moment, we'll have to talk about the man in the middle. And Cole, after watching that clash between West Brom and Brighton, Lee Mason got his signalling incredibly wrong. Yeah, he did, didn't he? Um, you know, he really just, you know, it looks like he kind of just lost all control, didn't he? And lost kind of control of what he was doing. Um, looks like he got in a bit of a panic and, and a, you know, a daze around, hold on, what have I actually done here? What what decision have I made? Um, and, you know, when you start going from one minute giving a goal, the next minute, no, actually, you know, I'm not giving the goal. It just doesn't set the right tone, does it? Um uh, it's a it's a myth, you know. You you clearly hearing from the player that you know the referee has blown the whistle. You can clearly hear it. Um, so you don't know why. Again, he then feels the need to kind of do what he's done and blown again. If he's been asked if he can take a free, quick free kick and he said yes, then you know that is part of the game, isn't it? You know it, it is allowed. Um, 
it just doesn't look good, does it? Um, and I've, I noticed now, obviously, for his next game, he's kind of been pulled out of his next game with a mysterious injury that suddenly appeared. But you kind of get the impression that that isn't going to be the case. You know, I think he's being pulled out of the firing line, probably for his own sake. Um, but that was just a monumental cock-up, wasn't it? And one that, you know, will, will tarnish him for a little while now. So, Matthew, when you look at that howler, why does Mason blow the whistle for the second time? You know, the rules are the rules, and Brighton at that point have done nothing wrong. So why is there this kind of panic mode that sets in? Yeah, I think the um, it's it's all come out and it's been explained that he, or like it's been interpreted that he saw Sam Johnston, the goalkeeper, out of position. So he's obviously, he's trying to do two things at once. There's obviously the rule that, you know, once you can have the free kick once the whistle's been blown. But that means, you know, that the team that, t- that is taking it is ready. He obviously saw, you know, Sam Johnston wasn't ready. And just in that brief moment of panic said, oh, hang on, everything's not ready. So I've got to, so I've got to bring it back. When really, it's not really on the defending t- side to be ready. It's on when the attacking team. It's said to be ready. And we've seen this a couple of years. The first one that comes to mind was Thierry Henry. I'm sure there have been thousands, yes. but the one for, that comes to mind for me was Thierry Henry. It was away to Aston Villa, I think it was, in 03-04, their, un, their invincible season. And again, and Thierry Henry has done it countless times afterwards, and Lewis Dunk indeed did it earlier. But, the, but again, in that situation... As far as my understanding with the referees are, he goes up to the, you know, the attacking team and says, do you want the whistle or do you want to take it quickly? And then the person who's standing over it will say, oh, I want to take it quickly or I want to get things set up. In which case, if he says the latter, then he'll, the referee will blow the whistle, set the things up, give it a couple of seconds and then take the free kick. But... If a player wants to take it quickly, then he would say, no, just leave it and I'll take it when I'm ready. And that's what Thierry Henry would do. He'd just be standing over the ball. And before the referee's even blown another whistle, he'll take the free kick, in which case that's on you for not paying attention. It's the fact that the whistles have been brought into it. That's the confusing bit. So Lee Mason, I'm sure he does understand what the rules are. But just in that brief moment of whilst everything's going on, he just forgot that one little one little incident and then obviously he got he sort of got away with it with the whole offs with the whole offside thing because if that had been a, if that had been a legal goal and everything it just would have added more to the confusion so max obviously referees are protected in terms of you know media scrutiny and all that well actually there's a lot of scrutiny but they never have to come out and face the music in terms of comments should lee mason and his ilk be explaining themselves after the game because obviously there's a lot of Furore circling this lack of insight or you know lack of knowledge behind what he's done and everyone else is in the in the dark. So why does it Mason just sort of come out after and say, look, yeah, I got it wrong and I got it wrong because of X? Yeah, I, I think that would help. I think what would what would generally help the problem and and the perception of res- referees is a bit more dialogue and a bit more um, kind of communication between the referees and everyone else. Um, now. You know, opinions kind of split. Micah Richards said the game would be officially gone if you started miking refs up. I don't think it would be that bad. And I, I've seen a video. There's a there's quite a good video of um, an A League ref in Australia called Jared Gillett, who is like really uh, well regarded and highly respected and at the top of his game and stuff. And I actually think he's done a couple of Premier League games um, since he kind of retired from the from the A League or, or stopped working in the A League. But he was miked up for a game basically and. You could kind of, and they did a little three-minute highlights package of the best bits and him explaining his decisions. And I, I think that there's there's nothing you can lose really from from doing that because um, you you know you'd get the perspective of the referees. And I think a lot of people are just angry about the the fact that um, Lee Mason hasn't come out and said anything. And probably he's he's got his own feelings on it. And you know he he might like to come out and and kind of explain his position and and defend himself a little bit. Um, but I presume that they're not allowed to or they're or they're told not to to kind of avoid stoking controversy. But then that gives the impression that they're kind of hiding away and completely in denial of their mistake um, and, you know, refusing to talk to anyone about it and, and not being under proper scrutiny when, in fact, he probably does realise he's made a mistake. And I think it might uh, dissipate a lot of the anger that fans feel if he said, look, um, I blew the whistle without really realising where Sam Johnston was. I wanted to make sure he was ready before 
um, you took the free kick. That was my mistake to blow the first whistle. So I corrected it with the second whistle. You know, I, I was under a bit of pressure at the time with all the Brighton players crowding around me and stuff. And so I, I changed my mind, but then I went back to my original decision. That's what it is. I should have never blown the whistle the first time. It wouldn't have counted. I'm sorry for my mistake. You know, I'll try my best to, to not let it happen again. And then that kind of takes away some of the some of the the anger and and the, and the furore. I mean, it's it's one of those jobs where people are just got always, always, always going to be angry um, with referees. You know, if a decision, if a tight 50-50 decision doesn't go their way. But I definitely think opening up the lines of communication um, would help. And I'd be interested to see what what the other guys think about that. Well, can I can I just sorry sorry can I yes, just add I don't the, the the thing that happens after the game I don't think there's any really one that would ever complain about a referee coming out after the game and explain what their situation is the problem always will be and this comes with you know miking up the referees the comparison that's always made is you know like they do in rugby the the only problem is there and it's been a thing the broadcasters would not allow it because there is no way that their seven second delay on the uh, bleep button would, uh, it would just go into overdrive <laughs> every single game with the, with the, I mean, no, I, mean, right. we, I, mean I mean, hang on, we hear the commentators every single game have to say, apologize for any, any language that, that may have offended. If you, if you have to do, if you introduce where a bit where you can hear what the players are saying to the referee, you, you just play that apology on a constant loop because you would never get the end of it. <laughs> that has always been the problem is that after games fight, it's during the game in the heat of battle when players are refereeing Jeffin that, you know, everyone, you know oh, won't everyone please think of the children watching at home? So that's always been the problem. I don't think the broadcasters would ever allow that to happen. Yeah, I think you're on the money on that front. But, Carl, obviously, post match comments, if the referee's not saying anything, Lewis Dunk certainly did. Now, he wasn't shy in his, um, well, appraisal. Of the ref, do you think he'll now cop an additional FA censure for those comments? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, G you know, g given the fact of what people have been done for in the past, then you know, I, I kind of get the impression that the FA will look at that and probably come out, and then it might just be that there's going to be a fine issued here. Um, but I can't believe that the FA will just sit there and allow it. You know, I'm not the saying that he said anything derogatory or anything about the referee. He was just being brutally honest, wasn't he? Saying that, well, not being funny, you know, the guy should be coming here to explain explain what the decision is and why he made those decisions. But I just don't think the FA, they don't really like their referees being called out in public like that, do they, in the after-game press conferences? Um, but I believe it goes back to what we were saying, wouldn't they? You know, if the referees, even if you didn't mic them up during the game and... You know, as we've Matthew said there, I think one of the things we it was tried once before, wasn't it, in an Arsenal Millwall game? Um, oh yeah, and, David Ellery, I wasn't think, he? Yeah, David Ellery, um, and obviously you had Tony Adams and crew going nuts at him during that game, didn't you, and calling him an effing cheat and stuff like that. And as the guys say there, you know, I don't believe the TV companies would want any of that on being, you know, put on their games and stuff like that, because it probably would just set the wrong image. And then obviously you'd have the whole furore about role models, et cetera, et cetera, coming up and it just wouldn't get very far. But I do believe referees should be able to come out after a game and like I say, win these decisions talk about their decisions, as we've said, and give their explanation as to why they've maybe given something, why they didn't give something. Because I do believe that, you know, even though fans still wouldn't like it, you could then at least kind of accept, well, the guy has come out and told us why he's given it. I still don't think it's right, but that's his view. That's why he's given this. And we move on to the next game. I just think it would sort of take away a lot of this controversy um, you know, you'd get rid of a lot of people saying, oh, this ref these referees are biased. Some of them are biased to the big clubs. Um, so I do believe we are reaching a point where, you know, the referees should be able and given a platform after games sometimes to come out and just explain what's happened during a game or a controversial moment. OK, then, Carl, let's focus on the game itself now. So is there a sense that the big Sam magic is just starting to rub off on West Brom? Because they're unbeaten in three. Five points of the last nine, but with the baggage being nine points from safety, is there also a feeling that the damage may have already been done? Yeah, I think so. You know, they've had a good little run, isn't it? And I say momentum's always key, isn't it? If you can start putting a, a run of results together, then it always helps. But I do believe, like as you say, Dan, I think unfortunately for them, 
I believe that they've probably just got too much to do um, to get themselves out of it this season. You know, nine points is still three wins. Um, and, you know, they've got another tough fixture this week, haven't they, with Everton, who, you know, Everton are playing quite well. Um, so, but they're at home, so you never know. They could pick up something there. Um, and then, obviously, you've got a big clash there with Newcastle. So, if they could get two results out of those two games, and especially given one being Newcastle, where they could suddenly bring Newcastle right into the mix um, and, and into that pack, then they'll probably still feel they've got a chance. But I, I do believe there's just a little bit too much to do for them. And, you know, that they won't have what it takes to get it done and get themselves out of that position. I, I still believe Fulham might be the ones that can turn it around out of those, out of that bottom three. So, Matthew, talking of damage, Brighton would have wished they dented the West Brom net rather than their goal frame. You missed two penalties, plus that earlier issue. You get the feeling it's never going to be their day. Yeah, exactly. And we get this a couple of times, you know, when teams are down the bottom and when they're struggling. Usually, usually it will be a team, um, ideally, like West Brom, who are, you know, trying to climb their way up towards the thing. And they'll, get, they'll have a game like that and just think, oh, it's, you know, our luck's against us. It's, it's just not one of those days. It's, you know, it's the season, it's just not meant to happen. And those are one of those, those are the games where you just think it's really not us. I mean, in a... You know, in the past two games, I know a lot of people have talked about Crystal Palace and their, you know, how how badly or how well they've done to because they've faced something like sixty shots on Tiger or something in the past two games, and or maybe it is West Brom. I'm getting maybe getting the stats confused, but Brighton, I think it may actually be Brighton. Uh, yeah, they've had like sixty shots in the past three games or something, and have only scored one goal. It is those type, you know, best exemplified with that performance against West Brom. It's where you think, right, we may not really be. Yeah, we've we had a good haul to start off the season, but going in towards this relegation battle, our luck might just be turning against us. Well, Max, to confirm that stat, it's 66 shots in three matches, one goal. Now, that is absolutely awful. There's always talk of, you know, outperforming XG and, you know, if things are different, blah, 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 you know, the sort of metrics behind the football. But it is always a results business. Brighton haven't got any in their last two. And is Graham Potter now going to start to worry about what he needs to actually do to not just score, but win a football match. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Because like like we were talking about with Leeds, you know, there's only so far you can go saying, oh, well, they play nice football, so bad results are, you know, you can gloss over them. And it is better to play well and lose than to play badly and lose. But at the same time, you know, I hasten to call two missed penalties bad luck. These are professional footballers. Um and, you know, I understand it's a pressurised environment. It's not like you're taking it in a vacuum or you're taking penalties in training. But, I mean, that you know, there's no crowd there and, and you're paid however... How, I, I just think you should be able to score penalties, you know. And, and it's not bad luck, in my opinion, um, if, you, if you miss two penalties in a game. Bad luck is, um, you know, conceding like 14 deflections and losing 14-13 or whatever. But... Yeah, I think they, they are going to have some genuine concerns about the attack. They have tightened up at the back and they're not conceding loads. You know, Palace only had two touches in the box in the, in that 2-1 win, which I'm now obligated to, to mention in every podcast going forward ever. Um, and so, you know, they were, they were keeping us at arm's length and so they're not conceding lots. But, you know, I look at the Brighton team and I think, the the back eight or nine players, you know, the defence, the midfield, pretty solid, pretty good. Lots of young players, room to improve. That that those front players, I'm not convinced by any of them really. Neil Morpay's all right, but then, you know, Welbeck has got fitness issues. Trossard misses a lot of chances. Um, Percy Tao, Andy Zakiri on the bench. McAllister's kind of more of a midfielder. Lalana's more of a midfielder. Um, uh, you know, your handbacks has really struggled apart from that one ridiculous overhead kick, I think it was against Chelsea. So but their forward options aren't really convincing me. And, you know, their defence is generally pretty solid, but they know that if they do concede one or two, that they are probably going to lose the game because they're not going to outscore teams. And that is kind of partially bad luck, you can say, with all the shots they're having, but it's also bad finishing. Carl, let's fast forward a day later to Stamford Bridge. Chelsea and Man United... Both with designs on a top four finish, will they both be happy with a share of the points? 
Um, I, I think probably United might be the happier out of the two. You know, going away to Chelsea, you know, Stamford Bridge, it's never an easy game. Um, and obviously Chelsea are under a little bit of a resurgence right now with the new manager bounce. Um, so I think out of the two, Chelsea might feel they probably let a good opportunity slip to make up some ground. And I think United will feel, well, OK, you know, we, we take a point away here um, against one of the big sides. Um, it keeps us up there and, and where we need to be. Um, and we'll move on and hopefully, you know, pick up the points in the games we should do. So, like I say, I think Chelsea would be slightly more disappointed. But, you know, United, you know, looked like a game where both teams really didn't want to just make any mistake, did they? And kind of cost themselves and end up with a defeat that they probably just neither of them need at this point of the season. So, Matthew, in this game, there was another referee flashpoint, and it looked at one point as if Callum Hudson-Odoi had handled in the box. Now, earlier in the season, that's a stonewall penalty. Stuart Atwell had a VAR look on the monitor, decided it wasn't. So, did he make the right decision? I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough one. Again, it's one of those... It's, the fact, again, it did, probably does come down to if he'd have given a penalty to start with, does he overturn it? I don't think so. But the fact that he allowed play to go on and then... Because it, it was quite a long passage of play afterwards. It was like 30 seconds to a minute afterwards before he actually got a chance to go over and check the But I think after that much had gone, is, is it really worth turning over for that? I don't, I don't really think so. But again, if he'd have given a penalty straight away, I don't think there's enough really there to, to overturn it. So I think that was just a uh, lucky... Co- luck, l- yeah, call it a lucky coincidence for Hudson Adoy there. Okay, then Max, what do you make of the supposed in an, and in inverted commas outside influences? Now, there's a supposed conversation between Stuart Atwell and Harry Maguire as to why he couldn't give the penalty. Is this one for the tinfoil hat conspiracy brigade? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just bollocks, really, isn't it? <laughs> in words, yes. Yeah. It's just absolute bollocks. Um, but, <laughs> I mean, yeah, c- considering all the penalties United have had, and I know that, um, you know, p- part of that is because they've got so many quick, um, nimble, agile, skillful attackers, you know, Rashford, Martial, Dan James, Cavani, Pogba, Fernandez. you know, moving in and around the box and taking touches. And so, you know, they are probably, with the attacking players that they have, they're going to get probably more penalties than average. But you look at the penalties that United and Liverpool have had, and it is, it's just so, so far ahead of the field. And, you know, I'm sure referees aren't doing it deliberately. I'm not saying that all, you, all referees in the Premier League are secretly Liverpool or United fans, but I don't think it's, it's uh, any coincidence that those two teams are historically the biggest teams um, in the country. I think there's a kind of subconscious, probable bias towards... Um, you know, maybe giving them 50-50 decisions. And yeah, so I, I personally think it was a penalty. Um, you know, in in an ideal football uh, Nirvana world in the future, um, yeah, you know, I wouldn't really like to see handball given for that. But in, in VAR times that we live in, even considering the rule change um, earlier this season, I think, it, I think it is a penalty. And, you know, Solskjaer could, would be well within his rights to come out after the game and say, look, that was a penalty. Um, it should have been given, you know, we're frustrated about it, whatever, move on. But then to to suddenly extrapolate that to it being a whole outside influences, you know, us against the world, everyone's conspiring to not give Man United penalties. Are you joking? Are you joking? All the, all the ridiculous penalties you've had. When about two weeks ago, Martial went down very softly under that Bednarek challenge and got a penalty. Or when last season, Fernandez got that you know, crazy pirouette penalty when he put his foot on Esri Konza and um, and United got a penalty. And Solskjaer seemed to be very quiet about that refereeing decision. Um, it, yeah, it's just a bit it's just a bit hypocritical. And it, yeah, I mean, in my opinion, it's bollocks. I'm not trying to piss off United fans, but um, yeah, it is really. <laughs> I'd have to agree. But something that isn't a conspiracy, Carl, is Southampton's form at the moment. Now, they were top at November. They beat Newcastle and it was all looking very pretty. Now there's a really, really worrying slide for the Saints. That's one point for the last 27 on offer. Surely we're not talking about relegation, are we? No, I I don't think so. You know, I think they'll, you know, I I can't see them getting sucked in in that far um, down there. And I'd like to think they've probably got enough quality to just see themselves and make sure they're safe there. 
But as you say, the form has really gone out of the window, isn't it? And and that will be a worrying sign because I think at certain stages, you know, it was quite funny, obviously, you know, in Spurs circles when Jose was having, we were having our massive blip, you know, Hooson was one of the managers that lots of people are like, oh, would you take him? Would you take this manager? And then in the last few <laughs> weeks, it's all been like, uh, actually, revise that. I'm not sure we'd want to take this guy as a manager now. Oh, you don't understand what's gone on there, have you? Because they were looking like they were really going places. Um, could have got themselves up there in one of those Europa League slots. Um, and they were playing some really good football and looking a really good team. But it has just fallen to pieces, isn't it, right there? And they desperately need to try and put a stop to this rot right now because, as I say, you don't want to, they, they don't want to slip too much further down the table because, you know, Okay, they're they're clear now, but it will only take a few more results like they're having, and they and you know Fulham start picking up results, and Newcastle and Brighton keep they start picking up results again, then they will get sucked down there. But I think they'll just have enough to stay clear of it this season. But it is worrying, and I'm guessing you know the the club are looking and trying to find out what's going wrong because when you were so looking so good at one point to now looking where they are and how they're playing, that is a worrying slide. Well, Matthew, they've got a points buffer over your lot at the moment, so it's not, you know, crisis mode just yet, although things aren't far from good. So they haven't got momentum, but what they've also definitely got is a defensive issue in the fact that they've conceded 44 goals, which is the joint second worst record in the division. So ultimately, do Southampton need to change tact for the final third of the season and just ban down the hatches? I think that there is an there is an element of that, but I think when it comes to Southampton, that gold we do have to sort of put in the anomaly that was the nine nil at Old Trafford when they were down to ten men for it was the whole game, wasn't it? Or pretty very, much. Very, yeah, pretty much the whole game. So it does can get some sort of anomaly there, but I do think they do need to, they do need to sort themselves out. I think there may have just been. Uh, a sense of, you know, like we had with Crystal Palace last year, you know, they're, they're on the beach, as it were. You know, once they get to 30 points, look at how the rest of the table's doing. Yeah, we'll be we'll be fine. We'll get, you know, five, six points here to the end of the season. We'll be fine. So there is possibly, I think they've, their aim does really need to be heading towards more. What are they going to do next season in terms of in terms of bouncing back and. Whilst they may not be in a relegation fight yet, if they can at least sort themselves out, they may get themselves a couple of more places up the league table, which could get them, you know, an extra couple of million here or there, to, which they, they could spend on wages, or they could spend on a new player. So, it. I don't think they're in any relegation danger yet. I think there is enough of that buffer, and you know, Fulham with our fixtures coming up, I don't, I can't see us catching them anytime soon. But they do need to sort themselves out in quick, you know, in. Quick fashion, and more for next season rather than this season, though. Well, Max, Matthew mentions prize money, and that is actually really important for Southampton when you consider the reported lack of finance at the moment. And there's also rumours that their Chinese owners are looking to sell, and the only reason they haven't sold at the moment is they can't quite agree the valuation of the club. Now, with this sliding form and Ralph's stock slightly decreasing, is there the risk that a new owner comes in and thinks, actually, he might be the odd man out? Um, potentially, potentially. I mean, the the nine nil kind of the first one you can you can write off to a bit of an anomaly. And it, it's true that in 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 that United game, um, you know, they they were down a man really early, and and so it is kind of a weird one off. But then for it to have happened the previous season, I think there is maybe a little bit of of, of anxiety that they uh, that, that Southampton have a tendency to kind of collapse when they're when they're under the cosh a little bit. And, you know, they have had injuries, um, but at the same time, um, the the players out for them, the players out injured at the moment who would be starters are Walker Peters, right back, Romeu, centre mid, and they seem to be in complete disarray. And realistically, at some point in the season, you're going to have two of your starters injured. You need to have the squad and the mental capabilities to be able to deal with that. And they haven't at the moment. That's not to say they played badly against uh, Everton last night, for example. But, um, 
But equally, Everton never got out of second gear. They didn't have to because Southampton kind of never laid a glove on them. And that's with, you know, the the saviour of England, centre midfield, James Ward-Prowse, who I think is a bit overrated because he can take a free kick. Um, Danny Ings was playing, you know, Che Adams, who's, who's in really good form earlier in the season. They've got two former England internationals in goal. Um, Bertrand as well, left back is a good player. Redmond's decent. Um, so the kind of individual talent is there, but there's just maybe a tendency for them to to fold a little bit when the going gets tough. Um, that said, they might get um, a couple of their players back and, you know, they, they start climbing up the table and they finish in the top half. You know, they're, they're not far off that at all, but it's possible Hasenhutl could be um, could be at risk if, if a trigger-happy new chairman comes in. So, Carl, let's look at the match on Monday. They lost to Everton by a single goal. And from an Everton point of view, they've got a game in hand over their top four rivals. So, will Carlo Ancelotti and his players think, do you know what, we've got a lot to say in this race for a Champions League place? Yeah, I think so. You know, the way the way things are going, as you say, they've got a game in hand. Um, they're on a good run, you know. That, that's two wins now. But then I, I still think the same issues haunt Everton, don't they, in the fact that they they can be quite an inconsistent side, you know. You know, they've won two on the bounce, but before that, they'd lost two on the bounce. And I think that's possibly going to be the, the, Achilles, the Achilles heel for Everton, that they just can't seem to find that real consistency where they can go on a real run that I think could kind of really push them into the mix. Um, you know, you've got West Ham that are still up there. I think they probably might feel confident that they could still finish above West Ham come the end of the season. Um, obviously, Liverpool, they're there. A win season go above them. Um, they'll feel they're in the mix. I think they've just got to try and make sure they can put a little bit of a consistent run. You know, they don't win and pick up a draw. But you can't write them off, you know, say that game in hand, that then suddenly puts them in. You know, if they win that, it puts them in the top four. And they're, they're playing some good football. They've got some good players. So there's no reason why they, they can't get there. Um, I just think the consistency and the fact that they'll drop points they shouldn't is what's going to cause them possibly just to still end up finishing around 7th or 8th in that sort of position. OK, then, Matthew, if inconsistency does prove to be their ultimate undoing in the league, there is still the FA Cup. Now, they've not won a trophy since 1995 when they won the FA Cup that year. Can they repeat that feat? In a few months' time, I think there's I think there's every decent chance. Ancelotti is a manager who he, he's a big name. He's the kind of guy that you would want in this situation. Like, I, I, I for instance, I would not I would not trust Mikel Arteta with this Everton squad, for instance, to take them to an F to, to an FA Cup. I still have because I, I know they were appointed around the same time. Yeah, and and I said I said at the time they got the decisions wrong. Arteta should have gone to Everton. Ancelotti should have gone to Arsenal to get them, you know, competing for titles straight away. Now, although Arteta's won one, part of that was due to having a decent squad already at his disposal. But back to Ancelotti, I think he is the kind of manager that can take them that one step over, you know, over the top as well. Already beat a very good side in Tottenham this this season in, in what, what was a bonkers game, but he still got the job done. Um, and I think when it comes to those, you know, one-off scenarios, yes, they've been inconsistent in the league so far this season, but they have shown that on their one day, if they can get it right, they can really challenge with more or less anyone, anyone in the league. So I would not put it past them to, you know, again, depending on how the draws work out, on their day to beat a Manchester City in the final or a semi-final to knock them out again to the final. So yeah, I think there's a there is a decent chance there. I'm not exactly putting them as favourites, but they've got more. They have more of a chance because they have Ancelotti in the dugout. And Max Richarlison got the winner last night in the list or the pantheon of great Brazilian forwards. How good can the former Watford man actually end up being? Yeah, this this is this is kind of interesting. Um, I, I saw, um, I think it was last last summer or maybe the summer before that Barcelona were interested in him for like fifty million, um, and you know, in a sense that that's probably more speculation than anything, and it's just a kind of number p- picked out out of thin air rather than you know potentially being a a genuine valuation or like Everton's asking price. But what what surprised me a little bit is the fact that um you know people people say oh what a what a ridiculous what a ridiculous thing to say he's never worth he's never worth uh, 50 million i'm thinking well why not he, he's a forward he's versatile he's young he's 23 years old 23 years old and he scored you know one in three in the premier league he plays f- regularly for brazil 
Um, you know, he can play wing, can play up front. He's good in the air. He's quick. He's skillful. He's got a good mentality. Um, occasionally, he kind of he he's, he's a little bit liable to get to get a yellow or red card. But I think he's a really really talented player, and you know, I'd be interested to see the kind of the the, the goal scoring stats for all Brazilians in the Premier League to see how he compares to Firmino and Coutinho and Gabriel Jesus, for example. But I think he's a really, really talented player. Um, and I definitely think he would be, you know, he, he would be a big part of Everton, of a potentially Champions League qualifying Everton side. Um, in fact, I can see him going to a better club than Everton if they don't get that, if they don't get there, if they don't get European qualification, um, at least Europa League, in the next year or two. Um, but Ancelotti will be a big um, reason for him to stay if they don't. OK, you mentioned Gabriel Jesus, and he was uh, part of a Man City team that won at the weekend. Cole, there's always been continue, continued issues sorry, about who they play up front in terms of City. But when your centre-backs are both on the score sheet, it doesn't really matter, does it? Yeah, just, you know, this this more of the same this season, is it? You know, City will get it done this season no matter what. You know, you've got centre-back scoring your two goals and winning your games. Um, and, and that's what it's all about. You know, that is a squad that's filled with quality and, and they're all playing really well at the moment, aren't they? Um, and they're going to get the job done. You know, for me now, the title, you know, the title's done. It's theirs. Um, and now it's just a case of what else can they go and do. I think the big one is Europe for them. I think that will really be, you know, now that they've got the league, in my opinion, wrapped up, it's just a case now of seeing it out and not doing nothing stupid. I think they can really concentrate on, on the Champions League because that is the one that they clearly want to go and win. And and you wouldn't bet against it this season, given the way they're playing. Um, I thought West Ham really put up a good fight, though. But. City just had that enough quality to get the job done. And, you know, I think I can't see them kind of being stopped at the moment. They just look too good. Um, and we always said, didn't we, that in this season where it was kind of, you know, a little bit bizarre and kamikaze, it would only take one team who really could suddenly put that consistent run together that would see them through. And City have kind of come, you know, from a rocky start they've been the team that have really stepped it up a gear, put that run together. And as we've seen, it's put them in a great position now. Well, exactly. If we use a horse racing analogy, they would be furlongs behind at the start of the race. But now they have galloped into what is really a one horse race when everyone was expecting some mad six way, seven way tussle, you know, months ago. So Matthew, in all seriousness about the centre back scoring, has the goal spread across the squad been the main facet of that consistency? Because now they've won... 14 in a row at the time of recording and you kind of forget that Sergio Aguero has been missing for most of that. You do, actually, you do and that's sort of a sign of a sign of a good team is the fact that you can get goals from everywhere. You know, I, I take it from the, you know, the Fulham situation. You know, everyone is, like with us, without Alexander Mitrovic, we would be, you know, we would be struggling as it has proved the season. You need to have goals from everywhere in the team. Whether that be, you know, even if it's not necessarily, you know, centre-backs from set-piece and what have you. But Man City have always had that. You know, even going back to last season, David Silva could always produce a moment of magic. Kevin De Bruyne could hit a rocket from outside from outside the box. Uh, Raheem Sterling, not necessarily, a, you know, a centre-forward. But you'd always back him to score at least one a game just because, you know, because of his pace and his skill and everything like that. So the fact that they have, you know, managed to, you know, see it without Sergio Aguero, who has come under a little bit of you know criticism from his time and isn't exactly Pep Guardiola's number one option. I know there's been some um, there's been some slight tension there there on that front, um, but the fact that they've managed to do it without him just shows you know what a great what a great squad that they have. And, you know, it's not really too much different from last year, which kind of makes you wonder why they can do it last year, but it's just. It, it 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 just shows you you know what my, what money can buy you. And just on a quick note, my point earlier about Everton and the FA Cup, my memory of the FA Cup draw had sort of gone out the window for a little bit of it. Turns out Everton do play Manchester City in the next round, so my point does stand. Very good, Max. If City were to win their next and final twelve league matches, they could end the season on ninety eight points. Now it might be a bit of an ask, considering they've won fourteen. So that's asking for twenty six wins in a row. But with the form they're in. Wouldn't put it past him. If that is the case, that's another hyper-dominant campaign from the Etihad outfit. Yeah, yeah, it would be. It would be. And like you say, it's kind of weird that earlier in the season we were really hyping up the prospect of like a six or seven 
horse race and they just kind of seem to have, have streaked ahead. But, you know, let's not forget, they've only lost two games all season. And that's that's pretty outstanding. Um, even when they were in a bit of a rough patch of form and, you know, not not getting the wins over the line, they've they've only drawn five and lost two all season out of 26, which is... <laughs> Which is which is pretty pretty outstanding, and yeah, they could go on to become that you know almost reaching that hundred point mark, which they did I think two years ago, um, when they beat Liverpool by a point. I think Liverpool had ninety seven and City ninety eight, if I remember correctly. Um, to be honest, I don't think they're going to go that far. Um, I think they'll probably win it extremely comfortably, and you know mathematically with plenty of time left in the season. I, I doubt if they were getting on for the century mark. Um, because, as you say, that would involve it like a ridiculous record-breaking 26-game winning run. But at the same time, you know the way that they're playing, you wouldn't you wouldn't say, "Oh, I don't back them to win that game against anyone." Really, against anyone. Maybe in the Champions League, you'd say, "Oh, you know they might meet their match in PSG or Bayern." But in the Premier League this season, I don't look at any game and think, "Yeah, City could slip up there." Um, I'm sure they will do, but they're in such good form that you know they might well go on and do it. Well, I think the key element in all of this is the Champions League because I think really Pep's going to look at this and think, right, how early can I get this title wrapped up? Because then you can coast towards the end of the season, forget the points tallies because if you're not going to reach 100, then what's 98? You've done that before. Really, it's a case of, right, get it wrapped up, rest the big names, all guns in the Champions League, and that might actually mean that the trophy that the owners have been craving for, what, a decade, is finally delivered to the blue half of Manchester. Talking of Champions League, Cole, Leicester. They've had a tough week, dumped out of the Europa League and they lost to Arsenal on Sunday. So at the moment, that in itself is a league defeat in isolation. But do you think Brendan Rodgers is thinking, oh no, here we go again? Yeah, it kind of seems, doesn't it, around this sort of time of the season, you know, just when everyone starts to really start hyping Leicester and actually saying, yep, they're, you know, they, they could they could give it a go and, and they'll stay up and around there. Then all of a sudden, you know, the results start to turn and the form suddenly dips. And next thing you know, that they're struggling to pick up a win. Um, I was surprised, you know, in the Europa League, you know, they've they've not done that well have they in the last couple of attempts in there. Um, they'll be disappointed with that 100%. But I think the league was the one where they really wanted to probably potentially put their focus on and try and make sure they get that Champions League because that will be a real success for them. But, you know, I think we are seeing with this lesser side that, unfortunately, if they get a couple of injuries, um, it really does take it out of them, doesn't it? And it was the same last season after the restart, wasn't it? They never got going. Then they started having some ridiculous suspensions um, and then they could just never recover. So they will need to make sure that they kind of don't fall into that same trap again this season. I think they'll be massively disappointed they didn't pick up the result at the weekend against Arsenal. They would have really fancied themselves there at home. They just need to make sure they go on to that next game now. And it is all about just putting it right. Go to Burnley. That won't be an easy game. But they just need to try and make sure they get a result out of that one and kind of just, you know, be like, wake themselves up and just make sure that, look, let's not let what happened last season happen again. OK, Matthew, we need to talk about the rattle because I really hope it doesn't have jinx-based properties. Last week, we put Harvey Barnes on the bus. Now he's out for six weeks. Could that dent his England hopes? <sighs> Oh, we've 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 come to the establishment of on the bus, have we? Is is that that because uh, yeah. that was that was brought up on Twitter to by um the uh, ever brilliant football cliches. He tried to put the argument. You know, do, what do we have for on the plane? Um, but yeah, Harvey Barnes, still a long no, still a long time in the season to go. It's it's only February. We don't really know the true you know the true extent. It's a bit of a weird one because. He was sort of on the cusp anyway. I I think I made this point last week. I don't I don't even think Harvey Barnes is probably going to make the squad. I just think there's far too many people in front of him. So I don't want to see this as a as a big knock because again I don't think he was going to make it anyway. It's certainly it's certainly a a step back, and hopefully he'll come back with the rest of the you know the couple of weeks left of the season and get into some form to at least put himself into the conversation, but. In the in the grand scheme of things, I sh- I shall withhold rattle for this week, mainly because he really didn't deserve it to, to begin with. Fair enough, Max. Another player who is probably in the frame for England is Keo Saka, rested for the Gunners win over Leicester. But does his versatility 
push him up the queue? Because really, he could pay about, what, three positions for Gareth in the summer. You know what? I, I think his versatility might hamper him a little bit. Oh, really? Um, and, yeah. So he, and we know that Gareth Southgate does like his versatile players. So he likes Dyer being able to play in defence and midfield. Likewise, Declan Rice. Likewise, Kyle Walker. Likewise, Mason Mount being able to play kind of a bit deeper in midfield and a bit further forward. And you do need some of those kind of utility players in your squad. Um, for example, Ashley Young at the at the 2018 World Cup. You know, he could play like left back, right back, left wing back, right wing back. You know, in the wing in the wing spots further forward. Um, but I, I I just reckon he he his versatility because he can play in so many positions. Saka, I reckon that might hamper him a little bit because. I wouldn't call him a specialist left back. You know, it's probably going to be Chilwell and Shaw. Um, and then can he play in one of those kind of two deeper central midfield spots? Don't think so. Um, could he play as a number 10? I mean, possibly, but there'd be players ahead of him, you know, Madison, Grealish, Foden, etc. And then you're just looking at him being a winger. And even, you know, even with his ability to play on the left and right, as he has done for Arsenal recently, you're still behind the likes of Rashford, Sterling, Sancho. Grealish, who he sees as a winger, Foden, who he probably sees as a winger, you know, Mount play, playing there as well. I just think it's going to be so difficult for him to get in. And I think he's really talented and, and he can play some different positions, which might be useful in future. Um, but I think, you know, his form in the Premier League probably does warrant a call up, but it's just so difficult to fit him in with all the, the riches of, attack, of attacking talent that we have, um, which is not something I thought I'd be saying as an England fan. That's fair enough, actually. It's a good point to look at. Sometimes you could be considered a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. And although Saka does look versatile and capable in those kind of positions you mentioned, it might just work against him come the summer. But, Cole, let's go to Ellen Road now, Saturday. And on the evidence of that match, do you think Daniel Levy had actually put a sale and return clause on that pitch? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a bit of a horror show, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, not, not sure what had gone on there. Um but as you definitely say, you know, that that was one that I think, you know, the grounds might have to look at after and sort of go, right, need to make sure that that doesn't happen again because that was a horror show of a pitch and not one you expect in the modern Premier League era with all the technology and everything that we've got surrounding it. Um, and in theory, it, it only played into Villa's hands by the looks of it, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, El Ghazi looks sharp. I think, you know, he's kind of comes in for some criticism with Villa fans, but delivers more often than not. And I think with Villa being where they are, Matthew, they've got two games in hand. We spoke about Everton earlier in the show, about whether they can be part of this top four conversation and have quite a loud voice. With Villa, is it always a sort of fear that, yes, they've got games in hand, but really they need points on the board? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they, they, they are, they, they've they got a lot of... They, they've made a lot of progress. And I think this year might just be one year too early for them. I yeah, after you know relegate, you know relegation battle last year. In a year that really they should have been relegated in the whole Sheffield United goal line technology thing first came back. Um, yeah, they are they are a club. You don't really when the pressure's on them, you don't really feel that they they're there or they or they have the players. It's you know, especially if Jack Grealish isn't especially if Jack Grealish isn't there. You know, as he hasn't been for the past couple of weeks. In the long run, I don't, I don't really see it. So yeah, if they were in a much better position, yeah, if they were the leaders and they had another team chasing them, you might feel a lot more confident. But I don't think there's really enough in that tank for them to catch up and make any sort of serious challenges towards Europe. But fair, but fair play to them for the strides that they've made this year. Maybe next year will be, you know, the time for us to, you know, consider them as an outsider for the, um, for European places. But certainly not this year. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the progress they've made has been fantastic compared to last season. And Max, most of that progress is arguably down to Emiliano Martinez in goal. If Villa's transfer business last season was scattergun, and that's putting it politely, they must be commended for that piece of business. Yeah, very much. And actually, I think um, every every player they, they've signed this summer has been a real success, you know, really. Um, so, yeah, M Martinez is, is, is fantastic and he gets a lot of the plaudits. Um, uh, because obviously he makes a lot of saves, um, he's very solid, and he was just kind of continuing or even improving on the form that saw him play last season at points over Burnt Leno um, for Arsenal. Um, 
Arteta gets criticised for letting him go. I don't think that's necessarily fair because Martinez obviously wanted regular first-team football, which Villa could give him and which Arsenal couldn't. Um, and I think Leno's a good goalkeeper as well. But but that aside, yeah, Martinez has been really good, really strong for them. He, he's kind of... And having that presence, that confident and, and assured presence in goal behind a defence can, can make such a big difference. And you, you see the difference with Palace when Guaita plays as opposed to Wayne Hennessy. Um, and I think just last season, you know, they were chopping and changing a little bit. Jed Steer played at points. Neyland played at points. Obviously, Heaton had been out long term with an injury and didn't really get a look in. Um, but he, he's just been there and been super consistent and reliable and dependable. And he's made a massive difference to them, as has um, Matty Cash, to be fair, the right back, because they were kind of swapping between El Mahamedi and Gwilbert last season. But Cash has been really good. And then obviously Watkins up front, whereas they were, you know, trying out Samata, who's now left on loan. And, you know, Keenan Davis and Wesley, who was a little bit up and down. Um, but yeah, all, all the players they've had have not only been good um you know the major signings have been good consistent performers but they've played like throughout the whole season and they haven't really been injured and you you're actually seeing the importance of Matty Cash to that back five that that defensive unit because the other four are still there you still got Martinez in goal you still got Conter and Mings at center back and Matt Target at left back but just losing one of those players there's there's a bit of a drop off and you know we've seen them struggling a bit more defensively i know they kept a clean sheet against Leeds but you know previously they've been conceding more goals with them um, cash out the side than with him in so yeah they they deserve real real plaudits for the for the transfer business that they've done not only martinez but also the likes of cash and watkins and players like that right it's the quick fire round carl you're off to bramall lane sheffield united i think showed some resolve in the first half aaron ramsdale had a very good 45 minutes arguably his best in those colors but liverpool being liverpool finally managed to break them down after the interval and recorded a very welcome win yeah, that was a much-needed win, wasn't it? Um, and one that they'd have been really pleased to get under their belt. Because, as you say, you know that they were quite dominant throughout the game. So, I think that they deserved it. Um, as you say, Sheffield United put up a bit of a fight. But I think if you're Liverpool, you're just looking for any sort of encouraging signs. And that will be a much-needed win. And they'll just like to hope and think that they can then push on from there and, and get sort of like top four back on track. Because, you know, as we say, it's not been a great title defence for them. They have had a lot of injuries, but they haven't played that well. So they'll be hoping that that's the game that kickstarts them again and can get them going on a little bit of a run now. Matthew, Wolves versus Newcastle. Uh, sorry, Newcastle versus Wolves. I was going to mention that, but the result's not as pertinent as the news coming out of it. Because Miguel Almiron and Alan Sam Maximan are now out for a month. And as a Fulham fan, you must be rubbing your hands with glee. Yeah, it was one of those moments. I mean, we you don't ever want to wish it to happen this no, no, way, no. but the fact that you know Newcastle are now down, you know, two of their two of their main forwards does just I, I just gave that little that little oh hello we've got a chance here moment when I was talking with it with the uh, Fulham uh, podcasting I do, but in a strange way I'm sort of also happy because that means that the only two options left for Newcastle United to save their season are Andy Carroll and Dwight Gale. Now picture a 4-4-2 <laughs> with Andy Carroll and Dwight Gale up front. Back to the old school, little and large, centre-forward striker partnership. There is part of me that wants that 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 too to keep them up, Just even if it would be at our expense. Just, a, just a, a nice flash of nostalgia to go back to Andy Carroll and Dwight Gale up front. It would be quite nice to see. If that happens, let's send Brighton down because I want to see that now. That's kind of like a, a throwback to Shoot magazine in the mid nineties, where you'd have a picture of a massive striker next to a small striker, and there'd be some sort of like odd couple or something. I want to see it. I want it to happen. But Max, uh, you can go to North London. Tottenham found their ignition spot, which they've been searching for for a number of weeks now. An impressive win over Burnley, it must be said. But they need to make sure that's not a full start for the final third of the season. Yeah, yeah, they they need to kind of continue that. And Burnley, um, they are generally pretty defensively solid. You know, Pope and Tarkovsky and me are obviously all all good, solid defenders. And particularly Pope and Tarkovsky can and probably will play at a higher level um, than Burnley. But Burnley do have a a slight tendency to, um, if they concede early, um, to kind of lose the game quite heavily. I think they lost 4 or 5 nil to Spurs last season when Son uh, scored that scored that wonder goal as well. Um, so, you know, I don't want to, to start 
saying they're, they're, they're attacking, you know, revolution has been realised now. But it, it was a step in the right direction. You know, it was only Burnley, I say in inverted commas, but it is much more encouraging and that's something that they can, um, something that will give them confidence in future. Um, and yeah, Bale looked really confident and yeah, committed and really nice touch and he looked really sharp and on it. And I think maybe we're finally getting to a point where um, he, he's kind of fit enough to start contributing. And um, it, it might be a little bit easy to say, oh, well, you know, why didn't Mourinho play him earlier? Bale was horrendously unfit, visibly unfit at the start of the season. And, you know, it, realistically, it takes this long to get up to full match sharpness, especially in a league like the Premier League. Um, but but he looks really he looks really good. And when he's fully fit, you'd say he, he deserves to start in that front three. And then you've got Bale, Son and Kane. That's that's a pretty f- formidable front three against anyone. You know, that's probably one of the best front threes in the league, maybe behind Liverpool's and United's and City just about. But that, that's that's a really strong attacking unit. And then if you kind of have that Mourinho defensive solidity or you, you hope for that uh, Mourinho defensive solidity behind them, then that's a really good base for, for, for the front three to go off and do their thing and carry on scoring goals like that. And then you could well get um, the, the European or even Champions League places. Fingers crossed that is the case. Right, I don't know how, but we've still got four minutes left and that means there's only one thing left to talk about. Crystal Palace versus Fulham. Not one for the entertainers, but... It's a game of football all the same. It'd be unfair not to uh, discuss it considering it's a pod derby. I watched it in full. I got seduced by the fact it was a pod derby. I could have thought, do you know what? I'll let Max and Matthew do their bit and I'll just kind of leech off them. But I thought, no, I'll do my own research. I wish I hadn't bothered. Fulham, they were better in the second half of Italy. But Matthew, do you also wish you hadn't bothered? There is there is some some extent to that, yeah. I think we we knew that it wasn't going to be a gangbusters. It wasn't going to be a gangbusters game. You know, Crystal Palace, you know, as they've shown recently, can take as many hits as they can and will be quite good defensively, and then just try and nick one at the end. So, you know, same with same with Fulham, very good defensively, just really can't get one at the end, at the other end. So I think if any of us expect this to be anything other than a nil nil or a, or a one nil to either side, we were probably kidding ourselves if, if it was going to end up any other way. Um, we probably had the better of the chances, but in the grand scheme of things, because of the Newcastle result the night before and the fact that they, if they'd have, if they'd have won, then the draw would have made things you know a lot a lot harder to swallow. But the fact that we're still now three points behind them and it is still within our own hands because we got to play them on the last day of the season, it's not a total disaster. Yeah, it's still as you urged it, that kind of gap is three points and you kind of just go again. Max, for you, I think Guaita second half inspired. Apart from that, not really much to write home about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Fulham were definitely the better team and probably deserved to win. You know, if any team was going to win or score, it was going to be them. Um, I think Palace had just kind of made up their mind after the, you know, the the horrendous 3-0 home loss to Burnley that, you know, Hodgson said, right, well, we've tried to attack and now we're not going to focus on that at all. We're just going to focus on getting our defensive unit right. And if we score on the break, great. And if we don't, we'll take the 0-0. And, you know, that's how we sat up against Brighton. We were kind of super clinical in that game with the two, literally two chances we had. Um, and But then against against Fulham, you know, they, they shut us down really well. I was actually really impressed with Fulham's pressing. Um, they didn't really allow us any time on the ball. Not that Palace were great at, you know, retaining possession. That's one of the weak spots under under Hodgson. Um, but I thought Fulham did really well. Um, Guaita made that really good save from the Major header. That that's kind of shows his class. Um, I wouldn't say that it was a complete... You know, one-way procession. Obviously, Palace didn't have any um, attacking threat at all, really. But we were kind of keeping them at arm's length. And most of the shots on target weren't really testing Guaita, apart from that um, Magic header. There was the Cahill block from the uh, from the Anderson uh, shot from close range as well. But yeah, I, I, Fulham definitely have enough to stay up. They've played the better football. They've got a lot of good players. Um, we'll take the nil-nil. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed we've managed to to ring more than 180 seconds out of this. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, on the topic of pod derbies, there's not one but two this week. As Thursday sees us go to Fulham, Sunday sees us play Palace. How many points are you expecting from both? Oh, a tough one. Um, I'd like to think, ideally, we should be looking at six, shouldn't we? You know, we should be looking at three points from each of those games. But Fulham, you know, I don't think that'll be an easy game, to be honest. Um, and, you know, 
although we think we've kind of found a better performances in the last two, you know, I still think Fulham might offer us a few more problems, especially, you know, in attack sense than what Burnley did. Um, and in Palace, you know, I'm quite confident in the Palace game because I think the last couple of times we've played Palace at our pace, they've kind of come and just surrendered quite easily. Um, but again, that could still be a tough game. Uh, but I'd like to think we should be getting six points out of that those two games. Yeah, I'd like to think so. I mean, like I say, after beating Burnley, you just hope that's not the full start. We need to get a run going if we've got any top four aspirations. But we will dissect both of those on next week's show because we've hit full time on this one. So all I need to do is thank my three fantastic Pod Squad members. Max, thanks for your time this afternoon. A sterling performance as always. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, talk to you next week. Cheers, buddy. Matthew, same to you always. And I hope you enjoyed that one. Yep, absolutely. Best of luck on the pod derby on Thursday. And you, my friend. And Carl, thanks as always for wearing the captain's armband. I hope you'll be back next Tuesday. Yeah, definitely looking forward to our, our derby. Um, and yet yeah, looking forward to next week again. Top man. Right, cheers, guys. And also to the listeners out there. And with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.